Thank you for tuning into this webinar, 2021 Taxes, What to Know and How to Prepare. This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH. AGH's tax team works with organizations and individuals to manage and minimize tax liability in a number of areas, including international, federal, state, local, sales and use, and property taxes. Far beyond filling out the forms, AGH's professionals help clients plan tax strategies that support their business goals, such as continued growth, wealth transfer, or increased cash flow. Today's speakers are Emily Lawrence and Leanne Stever. Emily provides business valuation and tax planning and compliance services for individuals and businesses. She works with a wide range of industries, including manufacturing, vehicle dealerships, and estates and trusts. Leanne provides tax planning and compliance services for individuals and businesses, and she works with a wide range of industries, including manufacturing, wholesale, retail, distribution, and not-for-profits. This past year was filled with ongoing challenges and uncertainty. How do these challenges impact you and your business? Join Emily and Leanne as they discuss developments in tax legislation, key tax strategies, and tax savings opportunities that business owners and high net worth taxpayers should be aware of as 2021 comes to a close and we enter 2022. All right, thank you everyone for joining us this afternoon. So as you can see from the screen, we're gonna to touch on a wide variety of topics today. We're gonna to look at some various tax types, the tax treatment of certain income and expenses, and talk about multiple credits that you may be eligible for. And we'll also take a peek at some proposed legislation that may impact tax law going forward. So let's dive in. We're going to start with state and local and international taxes because the IRS and the state revenue departments are focusing efforts in these areas more and more as each year passes. Okay, one hot topic in the state and local arena will be remote employee taxation. States have started to drop forgiveness and just expect compliance. So if an employer is not reporting the whereabouts of employees or withholding in the appropriate states, they should really not expect much forgiveness from the states. So for example, if you have employees that are working remotely from their home for a Kansas-based company, the withholding should be for the home state where the work is performed, not for the state of Kansas where the company is based. In response to the economic nexus provisions of the Wayfair case, states are actively looking for presence now rather than waiting for companies to come to them. So our state and local team has indicated that nexus questionnaires from states are now about equally weighted between questions about physical presence and questions about dollar amounts and number of transactions. States are starting to implement pass-through entity taxes where an entity can pay taxes on behalf of its owners. Oklahoma passed this option for tax payments in 2019 and Kansas is expected to see legislation on it in January of 2022 but the specifics of the legislation are unknown at this time. The hope is the Kansas legislation will be similar to Oklahoma in that it's elective and an exclusion from income for the owners rather than mandatory or some sort of credit for the owners. Kansas has recently passed a marketplace facilitator law for sales tax. Prior to this law, a company like DoorDash did not collect sales tax. So the taxes would be collected and remitted by the restaurants themselves. And this new law now requires the DoorDash to collect and remit sales tax. This means that sales tax will be charged on that DoorDash markup and the delivery fee rather than just the restaurant prices. So what does this mean for restaurants? Well, restaurants are going to need separate general ledger accounts for these transactions because under a sales tax audit, the company gross receipts would not match the sales tax return. And receipts from these types of transactions will not be reported on the sales tax returns of restaurants at all. 
For 2021 and forward, Kansas taxpayers can itemize on the Kansas return, even if they do not itemize at the federal level. So we anticipate there will be a checkbox on the Kansas income tax return to check if you itemized at the federal level. So if you do not check the box, but you do itemize for the Kansas return, we anticipate that notices will be sent to taxpayers requesting support. At this time, we don't think additional support will be required with the filing of the return, but we do anticipate that the state will ask for it later. For 2021, the Kansas standard deduction amounts have increased from $3,000 to $3,500 for single filers, $5,500 to $6,000 for head of household, and $7,500 to $8,000 for married filing joint. The Multi-State Tax Commission, or MTC, is having meetings regarding Public Law 86-272, which protects states' rights to impose income taxes when the only in-state activities are the solicitation of sales of tangible personal property. So the MTC is looking to get more companies to file income taxes in various states by revising that Public Law 86-272 to treat internet activity as property or activities which extend beyond solicitation. So this would pretty much capture any modern website that includes a chat feature, an email link to contact the business, online employment applications, or use of computer cookies that adjust inventory or production levels. So for example, I'm in Kansas, but if I do online browsing or have online interaction with a California company. So while I'm on the website, cookies are generated and left on my computer. And these would be treated as Kansas property for the California company and may cause Kansas nexus. Another popular topic has been Amazon warehouses. If you are an Amazon seller, Amazon has the right to store your inventory anywhere. And if you have inventory in a state, even if it's sitting in an Amazon warehouse, you theoretically are subjected to income tax, but you may not know about it until after the fact. So this will generally only apply to larger sellers, but it is something to make your tax professional aware of so they can help you determine what, if any, action needs to be taken. We've discussed non-net income taxes in past years, and these are taxes based on a gross receipts or other bright line threshold rather than traditional state nexus factors. We anticipate there are going to be more of these taxes to come in 2022. These taxes are easy, large revenue generators for states, and we're seeing many of these taxes becoming more and more complicated. They're adding aggregation rules and other complexities, and they're becoming complicated enough that our recommendation is to not self-prepare these returns any longer if you have been in the past. Thanks, Emily, for that good overview of the state and local tax changes for the coming year. I know a lot of information was covered on that slide, so just to recap, here are some of the more critical items to make sure that you monitor. The pandemic caused a lot of employees to work remotely during parts or all of the year. Make sure you know what states your remote employees are in and are withholding state taxes in the correct states. Beginning in the 2021 tax year, Kansas taxpayers can itemize on their Kansas return, even if they didn't itemize on their federal return. If this applies to you, make sure to keep the proper support for the deductions you took and be aware that you could get a notice from the state of Kansas requesting this information later. And lastly, be aware that your nexus status in each state that you are present or have activity in. With all the changes going on, state departments now, the, the nexus rules have changed and it's important to make sure you are completing all of the correct filings for each state. 
So we just covered a bunch of information on state and local taxes, but now let's switch gears and focus on some international tax reminders. So in today's global business environment, individuals and organizations are interacting more frequently with international customers, suppliers, and investors. The US federal government requires US taxpayers to file multiple international reporting forms if certain characteristics apply. Although these are primarily informational filings, most of these international forms have a $10,000 penalty per form per year for non-filing. So due to the large penalties imposed, it is important to determine the correct filings needed for each return on a timely basis. Also, although the penalty is $10,000 for most forms, the form 5472, which is the information return a foreign-owned U.S. or foreign corporation engaged in U.S. trade or business has a $25,000 penalty per form per year due to increased abuse of the foreign-owned U.S. entities and stricter reporting requirements necessary for the U.S. tax return. Form 1042 series are similar to 1099 filings, except they are for U.S. source income to foreign persons subject to withholding, so therefore they follow penalties closer to that of 1099 penalties, which tend to be smaller amounts. Due to these penalties that they impose, be aware of any interaction with foreign or international parties as they may cause additional filings. Important items to note to your tax preparer are if you own a foreign entity, if you are owned by a foreign entity, if you have foreign bank accounts, or if you have signature authority over any foreign bank accounts, and if you're making payments to foreign persons or entities that are subject to withholding. Okay, so there were three different provisions which the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, or it's also called the TCJA, um, set rules for. And then the CARES Act in 2020 changed them, and now they will revert back to the TCJA for 2021. So the first item that we will discuss is the Section 163J, Business Interest Expense Limitation. This limitation is calculated on Form 8990. Most commonly, if a business's average annual gross receipts for the three prior tax years are over $26 million, or the business is a tax shelter, then the company is subject to the Section 163J limitation. The TCJA based the, limitation, based the business interest expense limitation on 30% of adjusted taxable income. Then the CARES Act increased the adjusted taxable income limitation to 50%, but only for tax years beginning in 2019 and 2020. For tax years beginning in, the 20, in 2021, the limitation will revert back to the TCJA rules with a 30% limitation. So this will result in less interest expense being allowed as a deduction if this limitation applies to you. Also to note, beginning in tax year 2022, depreciation and amortization will not be added back into the calculation. Um, so this will make this limitation more restrictive in that year. Okay, another limitation we'll walk through today is the excess business loss limitation, which was created by the TCJA and then temporarily suspended by the CARES Act for tax years 2018, 2019, and 2020. The TCJA limitation applies to taxpayers other than C corporations and is intended to reduce the tax benefit of losses incurred by active non-C corp businesses. So this limitation will generally apply to individual or trust taxpayers. An excess business loss is calculated as the excess of aggregate deductions attributable to trades or businesses over the sum of aggregate gross income or gain. And any excess business loss over an allowed threshold is treated as a net operating loss or NOL and is carried forward indefinitely. 
Currently, this limitation is set to sunset at the end of 2025. The TCJA excess business loss limitation was effective for tax years beginning in 2018. It limited losses over a threshold of $250,000 for a single filer and $500,000 for a married filing joint. And this threshold was set to be adjusted annually for inflation. The excess loss over the applicable threshold was treated as an NOL to be carried forward to the following tax year. The CARES Act effectively removed this limitation for tax years 2018 through 2020. And for tax years beginning in 2021, the limitation will revert back to the TCJA rules. So another consideration if you have losses is the change in net operating loss rules. To illustrate the net operating loss changes over the years, we'll walk through an example. So let's say a taxpayer generated $100,000 NOL in 2018 and had $100,000 of taxable income in 2019. Under pre-TCJA rules, the $100,000 NOL could have been carried back to a prior year or carried forward to offset 100% of the 2019 taxable income. Then under the TCJA rules, the $100,000 NOL would have had to be carried forward to tax year 2019, but it could only offset 80% of the taxable income. Therefore, 2019's taxable income would be $20,000 and that $20,000 limited NOL would be carried forward to 2020. So the CARES Act brought back the pre-TCJA rules for tax years 2018, 2019, and 2020 only. So therefore, under the CARES Act, the $100,000 loss could be carried back to a prior year or carried forward to offset 100% of the taxable income in 2019. A carryback can be completed without amending tax filings, a C corporation could complete a form 1139, which is the application for tentative refund, and an individual taxpayer could do the same with the form 1045. So for NOLs generated in 2021, the NOL cannot be carried back and must be carried forward. It can be carried forward indefinitely, but it can only offset 80% of your taxable income in any future year. So one popular provision with the CARES Act that I'm sure many of you are aware of is the Paycheck Protection Program, also known as the PPP loans. The CARES Act included the Paycheck Protection Program, which allowed businesses to apply for loans that, if certain spending requirements were met in a specified time frame, would be forgiven. There were two rounds of PPP loans, with the second round ending May 31st of 2021. The loan forgiveness applications were available in 2020 and are required in order to obtain full or partial forgiveness. The loan forgiveness income is reported as income on the books of a company, but the income is not subject to tax. Therefore, since a forgiveness income is non-taxable, any accrued interest that you may have on the forgiven loan is not deductible as an expense on your tax return. Any expenses reported on the PPP loan forgiveness application are deductible on the tax return, even though they are expenses related to tax-exempt income. So this goes against the general rules, but general tax rules, but Congress issued a provision in the Consolidated Appropriations Act on December 27, 2020, specifically allowing the deductibility of these expenses. So if you followed a 2020 tax return prior to December 27, 2020, and you didn't deduct these PPP expenditures, you can claim them on a 2021 return instead of amending your 2020. If you apply for forgiveness in the 10-month period ending after the maximum covered period, you will not have to make payments and will not accrue interest while the forgiveness decision is pending. Interest accrues on any loan portion that is not forgiven. 
The forgiveness income is tax-exempt income, which provides a basis increase for pass-through owners. If you have pass-through owners with basis limitations issues and anticipate 2021 losses, you should attempt to receive your forgiveness approval in 2021. Otherwise, the tax-exempt income will not increase your basis until 2022, and you may have disallowed losses in 2021 due to those basis limitations. Additionally, some states do not conform to federal PPP treatment regarding income and expenses. For example, Nevada treats the PPP forgiveness as gross revenue for its gross receipts tax, and California conforms to the non-taxable PPP forgiveness, but the deduction of expenses is disallowed for publicly traded companies and businesses that did not experience a 25% year-over-year decline in gross receipts between 2019 and 2020. So if your business files returns in multiple states, be sure to research each state's rules regarding the treat treatment of the PPP forgiveness, income and expenses to make sure that you're reporting those correctly. Another provision of the CARES Act was the Employee Retention Credit, which is commonly known as the ERTC. Employee retention credits are refundable federal tax credits intended to help employee, employers retain their employees. The employer must experience a suspension in operations because of governmental orders or have a significant decline in gross receipts. For 2020, the credit is equal to 50% of the wages and qualified health plan expenses paid to employees beginning March 12, 2020 and extending through the end of the year. The 50% credit is capped at $5,000 per employee for the year. For 2021, the credit is now equal to 70% of the wages and qualified health plan expenses paid to employees. The 70% credit is capped at $7,000 per employee per credit. But note that the recently passed Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act retroactively ended this credit on September 30th, 2021. The IRS has now released notice 2021-65 to provide guidance for those employers to make adjustments for the taxes now owed for the fourth quarter that were not previously anticipated. So if that applies to you, make sure that you check out that notice um, to determine how to correctly fix that. The payroll costs used for PPP loan forgiveness cannot be used for the employee retention credit. Companies can participate in both the ERTC and the PPP loans as long as the wages and expenses used are not double counted in both programs. However, the PPP is the better benefit, so if the company doesn't have enough wages to cover both programs, the wages should be used for the PPP forgiveness first. Any payroll costs used for the ERTC are not deductible in the federal income tax return, so this is unlike the PPP loans where the expenses are deductible expenses. Payroll costs for the ERTC may also not be used for other federal tax credits, such as the R&D credit, the Work Opportunity Tax Credit, or the Families First Coronavirus Response Act leave credits. However, expenses used for the PPP loan forgiveness are considered qualified research expenditures for the R&D tax credit. And while not related to the ERTC credit, another payroll consideration is the deferral of payroll taxes. If you elected to defer payroll taxes for tax year 2020, you will get notices for each quarter in which you elected to defer taxes. You will also receive a reminder notice as the first repayment is due soon. Be aware that if you deferred payroll taxes for multiple quarters, you will need to make separate payments for each for the IRS to properly apply the payments. There are stiff penalties of any underpayments, so proceed with caution when you're paying these back. 
AGH will be issuing an alert on some of these payroll items soon. So if you are not signed up to receive any to receive our alerts, please con contact us to request the information when it's available. Okay, you may remember late 2018 when IRS noticed 2018-99 about parking expenses for qualified transportation fringes came out and it threw us all for a loop that expenses allocable to parking and parking lots, even in low population areas, would be non-deductible beginning on the 2018 tax returns. So final treasury regulations were released in December of 2020, and they provide for zero value facilities to avoid the non-deductible treatment. So the regulation states that if in a bona fide transaction, the adequate and full consideration for qualified parking is zero, then the non-deductible treatment does not apply, even though the taxpayer does not actually sell the parking to its employees. The taxpayer bears the burden of proving that the fair market value of the qualified parking is zero. However, a taxpayer will be treated as satisfying this burden if the qualified parking is provided in a rural, industrial, or remote area in which no commercial parking is available and an individual other than an employee ordinarily would not pay to park. So this will be good news for many clients who are located in those rural, industrial, or remote areas. Beginning with the 2021 return, you will not be required to count parking spaces or determine the expenses allocable to your parking lot. Instead, you will want to document support for a fair market value of zero for your parking lot, and then your parking expenses will be deductible. So one popular expense that many businesses take is the meals and entertainment expenses. The Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021 introduced changes affecting the deduction of the food and beverage expenses for tax years 2021 and 2022. Beginning in 2021, food and beverage expenses provided by a restaurant, and this can either be on-site or off-site, are fully deductible. But non-restaurant food expenses, such as grocery store purchases, are still 50% deductible as they were in the prior year. Entertainment expenses remain at 100% non-deductible. So since you will now need to identify restaurant expenses, we recommend that you have a separate general ledger account to track them to save time during tax preparation, as your tax preparer will likely ask you for this information. The CARES Act also changed the income limitation for corporations and individuals to 25% of taxable income and 100% of adjusted gross income, respectively, for the charitable contribution expense. This applied for 2020, but it will also apply for 2021 as well. It allowed a maximum $300 deduction for charitable contributions made by individual taxpayers who don't benefit from itemizing. But remember that this is only available for taxpayers who take the standard deduction. If you itemize, you cannot take this deduction. This was updated for the 2021 returns to be $300 per person. So now a married filing joint return can take up to a $600 charitable deduction. Another important consideration for businesses is the classification of expenses as charitable donations or advertising. An example of this would be sponsoring an event hosted by a charitable organization where it's possibly part charitable and part advertising. Often a sponsorship would be considered advertising because the company logo is shown on promo materials, signs at the event, or other items. When the treatment is adver as advertising is appropriate, it can provide a greater tax advantage because advertising is not subject to the taxable income and AGI limitations that a charitable contribution is. 
It's important to have their receipts for, from charitable organizations that identify how much money was given and what it was attributable to. Also keep in mind that there are different limitations for various types of gifts, such as cash and stock, and for various recipient organizations, including public charities and private foundations. Therefore, it's important for you to provide adequate documentation on all charitable contributions made throughout the taxable year, so your tax preparer will know how to correctly report those on your tax return. In 2021, the mileage rates for employees, self-employed individuals, or other taxpayers to use in computing the de deductible cost of operating an automobile for business, medical, or moving expense purposes decreased. The bus business mileage rate decreased 1.5 cents to 56 cents per mile. The medical and moving business mileage rate decreased from 17 cents per mile to 16 cents per mile. But keep in mind that the mileage rate for moving now only applies to moving purposes for qualified active duty members of the armed forces. The mileage rate for miles driven in service of charitable organizations remains unchanged from the 2020 rate of 14 cents per mile. Taxpayers always have the option of calculating the actual cost of using their vehicle for business purposes rather than using the standard mileage rate However, it's important to note that the taxpayers must opt to use the standard mileage rate in the first year the automobile is available for use. Then in later years, they can choose to either use the standard mileage rate for actual or actual expenses. A taxpayer cannot opt to use the actual expense calculation in the first year of the automobile use and then change the standard mileage rate in later years. Because of this, it's important to look at those deductions each year to determine which would be the most effective. We've covered several deductions you can take on your 2021 return, so now let's look at some credits available. So Emily will take us through the first credit. Okay, the first credit is the research and development or R&D credit. For 2021, R&D expenses are still currently deductible in the year incurred, but as the law stands now, that will change beginning in 2022 due to provisions in the TCJA. So in 2022, you would be required to amortize R&D expenses over either five or 15 years. The five-year amortization period applies to R&D activities conducted in the United States and the 15-year period for activities performed outside of the US. So let's look at a simplified example. Presume a company spends $100,000 a year on R&D expenses year after year after year. And the current 2021 law allows for a 2021 deduction of that $100,000. But the rules change in 2022, and the company could only deduct $20,000 of its 2022 expenses currently, assuming they were all US-based expenses. So this is $80,000 less expense being deducted. Then in 2023, the company would deduct $40,000, 20,000 from the tax year 2022 and 20,000 from tax year 2023. So $60,000 less in expense. So that's something that would make a fairly significant difference for taxpayers. So what are some of these R&D expenses? Qualified research expenses or QREs include in-house research expenses and contract research expenses. In-house research expenses fall into two common categories. The first are wages paid or incurred to an employee for qualified services performed by the employee, such as engaging in, directly supervising, or directly supporting qualified research. And then the second is any amount paid or incurred for supplies or tangible property 
directly used in the conduct of qualified research. Then contract research expenses are 65% of any amount paid or incurred by the taxpayer to another person who is not an employee for qualified research. And qualified research is performed on behalf of a taxpayer if the taxpayer has the risk of financial loss and substantial rights to the results from the research. So all this being said about the switch to amortization in 2022 instead of current deductibility, there is a bill called the American Innovation and R&D Competitiveness Act of 2021 that was introduced to the House in February of 2021. And it has almost 90 co-sponsors and its provisions would eliminate the requirement to capitalize R&D expenses and would retain the current deductibility rules. So we'll have to stay tuned and see if or when there's any movement on this bill or a provision in the Build Back Better plan, which would delay the start of amortization for four more years. If you have questions about whether you're engaging in qualified R&D activities or whether you're maximizing your allowable R&D credit, feel free to reach out through the trap feature and a member of our R&D team will follow up with you. So one credit that I'm sure many of you are aware of is a recovery rebate credit. The CARES Act resulted in economic impact payments which are more commonly known as stimulus checks, being sent to eligible individuals. This stimulus payment was actually a prepaid tax credit called the Recovery Rebate Credit for tax year 2021 that will, that will be reported on the 2021 tax forms. The payment is not reported as taxable income. The Recovery Rebate Credit will be calculated in the same manner as the original economic impact payments, except the amounts will now be based on tax year 2021 instead of 2020 or 2019 tax years as the other credits were calculated. The maximum credit is $1,400 or $2,800 for married filing joint return plus $1,400 for each qualifying child. It is only used to determine if you are eligible for additional funds as might be the case if you had a child born in 2021 or if you aren't impacted by the phase out limitations due to your 2021 income being lower than your 2020 income. Taxpayers will not be required to pay back the difference if they received more than is calculated using 2021 amounts. Payments begin to be reduced for individuals with adjusted gross income of more than $75,000 or $150,000 for married filing joint returns. The reduced payments end completely at $80,000 for individuals and $160,000 for married filing joint returns. People above these, limit, these income levels will receive no payment. Unlike the first two payments, the third payment is not restricted to children under 17. Eligible individuals will get a payment based on all of their qualifying dependents claimed on their return, including older relatives like college students, adults with disabilities, parents and grandparents. But if you were claimed as a dependent on someone else's tax return for 2020, then you are not eligible for the third economic impact payment. So if you received economic impact payments in 2021, make sure that you give that information to your tax preparer so they can make sure that you get the correct amount. So now we'll switch to some credits that are becoming more and more popular. Um, these are the non-business energy property credits and the residential energy efficient property credits. The non-business energy property credit is equal to 10% of the amount paid or incurred for qualified energy efficiency improvements during the tax year, plus any residential energy property costs paid or incurred in the tax year. 
qualified energy efficiency improvements must be on your main home and meet certain energy standards. The improvements may include any insulation materials that is primarily designed to reduce heat loss or gain, exterior windows and skylights, exterior doors, and any metal or asphalt roof primarily designed to reduce heat gain. There are lifetime limitations for various expenses incurred after 2005. There's a credit limit of $200 for windows and other smaller limits for different types of properties, plus a total combined lifetime credit limitation of $500. So because of these limitations, you may only be able to utilize this credit in one year, but it's something you don't want to ignore if you may be eligible. Another credit to incentivize individuals to make their home more energy efficient is the Residential Energy Efficient Property Credit. This credit allows for a credit equal to 26% of the cost of qualified property. Qualifying properties are solar electric property, solar water heaters, geothermal heat pumps, small wind turbines, fuel cell property, and starting on December 31st, 2020, qualified biomass fuel property expenditures paid or incurred in taxable years beginning after that date. In general, traditional roofing materials and structural components do not qualify for this credit. However, some solar roofing tiles and shingles serve as both solar electric generation and structural support, so these items may qualify for the credit. Components such as a roof's decking or rafters that serve only a roofing or structural function do not qualify for the credit. So if you have made any of these changes to your personal residence, make sure to provide your support to your tax professional to take advantage of these credits. Um, as you can see, one of them can be a substantial credit on your tax return. Okay, as you're probably aware, the child tax credit program was expanded in 2021. The American Rescue Plan Act increased the child tax credit amount and raised the age limit of qualified children from age 16 to age 17. The previous credit amount was $2,000 per child under age 17. For families with modified AGI under $150,000, the credit is now $3,000 per child for children over age six and $3,600 for children under age six. Families with modified AGI over $150,000 but less than $400,000, the old $2,000 credit limit still applies, then couples with modified AGI over $400,000 will be phased out and may not be eligible for the child tax credit at all. Another change to the program is that half of the total credit amount is now being paid out in advance monthly payments, and then taxpayers will claim the other half when they file their 2021 income tax returns. So keep in mind that these advance payments are simply a prepayment of up to half the credit you would have received on your 2021 income tax return, so this could cause your 2021 refund to be less than you'd anticipate. And with that in mind, you do have an option to elect out of these advance payments. The IRS has an online portal available where you can unenroll from the advance payments, update bank account information, and update your modified adjusted gross income if it changed in 2021. So now we'll move to a similar child tax credit, the Child Independent Care Credit, which the American Rescue Plan Act modified. The maximum amount of expenses you can take into account was increased to $8,000 for one qualifying person for a maximum credit of $4,000. Previously, you could include expenses of $3,000 for one qualifying person with a maximum credit of $1,050. The maximum percentage of work-related expenses allowed as a credit is 50% for 2021, 
whereas it ranged from 20 to 35% in 2020. In order to get this credit though, both spouses either need to have earned income or be considered a student or disabled. Also taxpayers with adjusted gross income over $438,000 are no longer eligible for this credit. Whereas in the past, those high income earners just received a reduced credit amount. This credit is also potentially refundable for 2021, meaning taxpayers may receive a refund because of this credit, even if they do not owe taxes. So to be eligible, the expenses must be paid by December 31st, 2021, and the taxpayer's main home must be in the US for more than half the year. So as your children grow up, they will age out of these credits, but they may become eligible for higher education credits, which Leanne will discuss. So uh, you may be eligible for an education credit on your 2021 return, but each credit has its own rules and you must meet all three of the following to be eligible. So either you, your dependent or a third party must pay qualified education expenses for higher education. So these qualified education expenses are amounts paid for tuition, fees, and other related expenses such as books, supplies, or equipment needed specifically for a course of study. Room and board expenses are not considered qualified education expenses, so they cannot be used for this credit. An eligible student must be enrolled in an eligible in educational institution, which is any school offering higher education beyond high school, and the eligible student is either yourself your spouse or dependent you list on your tax return. If you're you or your dependent are enrolled at an eligible institution, make sure you obtain a copy of the Form 1098-T for each school. These forms provide your qualified education expenses for the year. Multiple forms can be used for the credit calculation. The American Opportunity Credit and the Lifetime Learning Credit are still available for tax year 2021. Keep in mind that you could be eligible to claim both credits. However, you can only claim one credit, not both. So you wanna make sure to look and claim the credit that is most beneficial for you. Each credit has its own specific requirements. So make sure to review the limitations to determine which provides a better benefit. For 2021, the income phase out limitations for both credits increased for inflation. So when you have these qualified education expenses, many students have student loans to help cover the costs. So now let's take a look at how the CARES Act changed the repayment of these loans. One major provision passed with the CARES Act was the temporary relief from student loan payments. While this temporary relief has been extended multiple times, the Biden administration has confirmed that the fourth extension of the student loan relief will be the final extension. The fourth extension delayed student loan payments until January 31st, 2022. So this means beginning on February 1st of 2022, taxpayers' federal student loan payments will resume with normal interest rates. Another lesser known provision that went into effect with the CARES Act was the creation of a tax-free provision for employer student loan assistance programs. The provision allowed an employer to make up to $5,250 in student loan payments on behalf of an employee within a year. These payments can be made directly to an employee or to the student loan servicers with both payment options considered tax-free to the employee. This results in the employee excluding up to $5,250 from his or her income tax return, while still allowing the employer to get a payroll tax exclusion on the funds paid on their tax return. The Consolidated Appropriations Act extended these student loan provisions through 2025. So hopefully most taxpayers will have student loans paid off well before retirement, but 
anymore, who knows? Regardless, let's talk about retirement next. Yeah, hopefully it's paid off, but if not, let's look at retirement plans. So in 2020, the required minimum distributions or RMDs were waived by the CARES Act, but for 2021, they have returned and they are indeed required again. The SECURE Act increased the RMD age from 70 and a half to 72. So 2021 RMDs are required for anyone age 72 and older as of December 31st, 2021. The RMDs should be taken by year end to avoid a 50% penalty. If 2021 is your first RMD, you have until April of 2022 to take the distribution. If you don't need the cash from your RMD, but you're of an age you're required to take it, you do have some other options. You could gift up to $100,000 annually directly from your IRA to a qualified charity. So when this qualified charitable distribution or QCD occurs, the distribution isn't subject to taxes. The distribution is excluded from your taxable income. However, the charitable contribution is not treated as an itemized deduction. Also, the CARES Act allowed up to $100,000 of COVID-related distributions from eligible retirement plans. So you were eligible for these distributions if you, your spouse, or dependent were diagnosed with COVID, experienced adverse financial consequences as a result of being quarantined, furloughed, laid off, having work hours reduced, not being able to work because of a lack of childcare, or due to closing or reducing hours of a business you own or operate. The CARES Act outlined these provisions for the calendar year 2020. Then the Consolidated Appropriations Act extended the penalty-free distributions through June 25th, 2021. So perhaps some of you that needed it were able to take advantage of that opportunity. Okay, for 2021, the lifetime exemption is $11.7 million per taxpayer. So a married couple has $23.4 million combined. And barring any legislative changes, that amount will increase in 2022 to 12.06 million for a single taxpayer or 24.12 million for a married couple. The estate tax rates range from 18 to 40% when the estate amount exceeds the exemption. So current law, which is the TCJA, has a built-in change to the lifetime exemption that would take effect January 1st of 2026. And this would revert the exemption back to a $5 million level, but that $5 million is indexed for inflation, so the amount would likely be around $6 million. Under current law, a beneficiary receives a step-up in basis when an asset is inherited from the decedent. And the step-up is from the decedent's cost basis to the fair market value of the asset. So this means if a parent dies with a house with a basis of $200,000, but a fair market value of half a million dollars, the inheriting child gets a stepped up basis to that half a million dollars. So if the house is immediately sold, the child has zero gain instead of having $300,000 of gain. So that can be a significant factor. There can be law changes in the meantime. There have been some discussions about reducing the lifetime exemption before the 2026 sunset, possibly eliminating basis step up, but we'll have to wait and see what changes, if any, might pass. So now we'll kind of talk about some IRS updates. If you've had to deal with the IRS recently, whether it be for IRS notices or status of refunds or filings, I'm sure you've had some difficulty and frustration during the process. The COVID-19 pandemic had a large impact on the processing and operations of the IRS. 
As you can see from this slide, various processes at the IRS have slowed considerably. If you have an issue requiring IRS correspondence, be aware that a resolution will take some time as they navigate through these times. If you received an IRS notice and you responded timely, don't be surprised if you still receive another notice. Most of them are automatically generated, so they are kicked out before the response has been processed. However, there currently is not an easy way to check on the status of your response without having to spend significant amounts of time on the phone with an IRS representative. Some taxpayers additionally have not received refunds from tax return filings, recovery rebate credits, or employee retention credits filed at the beginning of the year. Unfortunately, due to the status of the IRS right now, the only option for some taxpayers is just to wait until the IRS processes the filings or the responses. If you have not received a refund yet, just be aware that the IRS may not have processed your filing. During the pandemic, the IRS also started utilizing virtual formats for exam purposes. So if you are a business or under exam by the IRS, be aware that the exam will most likely be remote and any correspondence and meetings with agents will likely be virtual rather than in person, which is what they usually did in the past. So I just talked about the slow status of the IRS correspondence, but now Emily will cover another topic that is unfortunately taking up more time from the IRS. Okay, so you may remember last year they excluded from taxable income the first $10,200 of unemployment income. The IRS has automatically issued refunds for those returns without amended returns being required in most cases. Um, but as a reminder for 2021, that unemployment income is fully taxable again. Tax extenders, um, there's a list on your screen here. These are things that Congress comes out and extends for a very short time period. So the ones on your slide were extended through the end of 2021. So if taking a look at this list, you think any of these items apply to you, be sure to consult your tax advisor. And then we've had some recent legislation. So the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act has been signed into law. That was done in mid-November. It prov provides funds for improvements to transit and utilities and clean energy investments. In order to pay for these improvements, the legislation plans on raising funds through tax reporting changes, a lot related to cryptocurrencies, um, but it doesn't take effect for a few years. One immediate change, however, is as Leanne mentioned earlier, it terminated the employee retention credit earlier than scheduled. So that ended September 30th instead of going through the end of the year. Then there's one more bill that's making its way through Congress. Uh, so the Build Back Better legislation is currently make it, making its way through Congress. This was passed by the House in mid-November, but is expected that the Senate will make significant changes before they will approve the bill passed by the House. Because there still may be significant changes from Congress and or the President, we are unsure of the final provisions that will be included. This bill contains many more tax changes in the Infrastructure Act. However, we will not cover them today since there are still so many unknowns. 